Hello there, friends, and welcome back to The Longest Night, which is a little show about the HBO series Game of Thrones. My name is Rob. My name's Lizzie. And together we are making our way through all 73 episodes of Game of Thrones. Me for what feels like, I don't know, the hundredth time, and Lizzie for the very first time. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Longest Night GOT. That is at Longest Night GOT. And we've also got pretty strong links with the guys over at r slash narth subreddit. That's over on Reddit. Um, one of the moderators over there. So come and say hello to us if you want to. Um, the music that brought us in today was Lily Allen's 2006 single Alfie that we mentioned a little bit last week. Uh, as we all know, that song is about Alfie Allen, who plays Theon Greyjoy on the show. And after Theon's bad day last week, he's had another not-so-great day this week, so what better music to bring us in? Um, <laughs> our US listeners might not be so familiar with uh, Lily Allen because she wasn't as famous over in the US as she was in the UK around sort mm. of like the mid to late 2000s, but she did appear, I found out this today, I had never heard the song in my life, she did appear on 5 O'Clock by T-Pain alongside Wiz Khalifa, and that reached number 10 on the Billboard charts 10 years ago. Um, oh, wow. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, Lizzie, but I think Lily Allen was responsible for some of the best number one singles of the 2000s that we had over here, like Smile, The Fear. Yeah. They were, yeah. I, I love those songs so much. I agree. She was one of those sort of crossover artists that you don't, you don't, well, you don't really get them anymore because music is, I'd say, a little bit more homogenous. It's not contained mm. within genres so much but yeah i remember at the time um she was one of those rare cases where she could be in the indie press and be in you know the pop charts at the same time and it wouldn't you wouldn't really think anything of it no at least not until um Jesus, but we don't talk about Jesus. Yeah, we don't talk about Jesus. um no shame was all right though the one she did after Jesus, that that was okay um, but anyway, uh, we're getting sidetracked a little bit. That's my fault. So <laughs> on to uh, on to this week. Right. So this week we are going to be discussing season two, episode three of Game of Thrones, which is entitled What is Dead May Never Die, which is not the Greyjoy House words, but it is closely relinked with their religion. Um, it was written by series story editor Brian Cogman and directed by Alex Sakharov, who is making his first of four appearances in the director's chair on the show. He was the director of photography for four episodes in season one, and he's gone on to do episodes of Ozark and The Witcher, but Right now, he's doing What Is Dead May Never Die on Game of Thrones. The episode first aired on April 15th, 2012, to an audience of 3.8 million people. Um, so, Lizzie, where are we on the scale this week? Are we better than the Nightlands, do you think, or still stuck in the slow waters of, like, early season table setting? Yeah, I'd say it was better than the Nightlands. Um, I do think there was a lot more kind of movement in this one. And also, I'd say... Probably the best ending since Baylor. I don't Ooh. know if you agree. Okay. Yeah. So what makes you think it has the best the best ending? Yeah, well, it's it's not a particularly nice ending, but again, neither was Baylor. Neither was Baylor, to be honest. No, yeah. no. But um, yeah, I think in the way that we've we've talked about it before before about Arya and sort of male role models and we see another here unfortunately snatched away all too soon 
but yes, more death. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, I'd say it's still a very clever ending, but we will come to that. Yeah, um, I think that looking back, um, this one has stayed about the same in terms of how much I uh, actually quite like it, which is I really like it. I think this is great. I think um, Brian Cogman's one episode in the first season was Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things, which was, you know, it was good. It was fine. I enjoyed it. But I think that it struggled a little bit with adjusting to the rest of the season stylistically. It felt kind of on its own Mm, a little bit. I mean, we would kind of joking around saying it sound, it felt like a syndicated detective cop show or whatever but this one feels like it's really settled in and he feels like um like brian cogman he really feels like he knows what he's doing now and he's writing these scripts and uh, in terms of yeah. um writing for game of thrones thematically i think it's really tight and that really helps i think there's loads of focus in this episode on the status of alliances that have formed over the last three or four episodes like Theon yeah. and Rob are kind of drifting apart, but that means that Theon and Yara are getting closer together. Marcella um, mm-hmm. um, is uh, Cersei's daughter. She's potentially being shipped off to Dawn to broker an alliance with them. Arya and Yorin's alliance reaches what is probably its strongest point, but then it gets ripped away. Sansa and Shay are now going to be spending a lot of time together. Catelyn and Renly have formed an alliance in this episode of some kind. So lots of coming together and drifting apart and lots of okay, where are we in this story now? Lots of people having to pick sides because now a yeah, war yeah. has started and like there's lots of people who've got to pick pick their sides and pick who they want to fight for. I think that what maybe drags the episode down a little bit for me was that there's still so much quick globe hopping. and I mean, but I think that maybe that's part of it, this idea that Ned Stark's death has sparked a ripple and it's now like there's a war that's got five different people leading armies in it now and we have to follow their various efforts to gain perspective and yeah so yeah yeah, you know i think it's all all the stuff that kind of drags it down is the necessary stuff the kind of nuts and bolts box ticking stuff that every episode of every television show ever has to do especially in a soap format like this but yeah no i'm I'm glad you um, enjoyed it more than the nightlands but i think that there's no real... I mean, I think we'll get to this with the Winterfell uh, plotline, but there is a lack of magic in this episode that maybe makes it a little easier to digest. I, I don't know about you. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, that's been a sort of recurring theme in the early half of this season. And and you're right, there's, there's not a lot of it in this episode. In fact, you even mentioned before about how Cripples, Bastards and Broken Sink had that kind of almost like a, a spy drama thing going on with, uh, you know, Ned and John Aaron. Mm. Whereas this has got the storyline with Tyrion, which we'll discuss a bit, a little bit later on, but it does have a <laughs> yeah. little bit of, yeah, playing people off against one another to try and figure out, you know, who who's saying what to who. Old Nan used to tell me stories about magical people who could live inside stags, birds, wolves. That's exactly what they are, Bran. Stories. So she was lying. They don't exist. Well, they may have done. But they're gone from the world. Bran is once again dreaming through the eyes of his direwolf, Summer. Uh, when he wakes up, he tells Maester Lewin about the dreams, but Maester Lewin kind of comforts him and says that dragons and magic and people with, you know, Bran's affliction gift that he says he has, um, they died out long ago and and that's it i 
have a couple of notes about Winterfell this week. Not much, but what about you? What you kind of made a noise there. What was that noise? What was that indicating? Well, it's it's my favourite trope again, isn't it? <laughs> they all they all died hundreds of years ago. Yeah, if only you knew. <laughs> if only yeah. you knew. Well, um, yeah, I have a little thing about that, which is more like Mace Lewin's obviously playing that kind of role that you say your favourite trope, where. Um, it's a bit of like dramatic irony because obviously we're all going ah, nah, nah, and Mason yep. Lewin, you think you're so yep. clever, by the way, but <laughs> but I think that there is something in it in the sense that the show is beginning to. I think there there was clearly some characters who were taking this story into, or at least taking Westeros into something of a new age where dragons and magic and that kind of stuff becomes important and starts playing a role in the world again. And there are those characters who are resisting that change and are very much of the old world. And I think Mesa Lewin is probably one of those characters where he's obviously in denial about the abilities that Bran says that he has. And he's quite not... I mean, I suppose he is sceptical, but he's more doubting than sceptical, really. And... I think there yeah. is a, a reluctance to believe rather than a flat out denial. I feel like he knows, but he doesn't want to doesn't want to scare anyone and doesn't want to scare himself. Well, that's it, and it's it's not scaring Bran as well because he is just a child. You, you're trying mm. to sort of comfort him. You don't want to say, you don't want to you know make his mind wander even more. You want to sort of reassure him, and because he's he's basically all that Bran has. Other than like I don't know Hodor, Hodor and uh, Osha, who didn't make an appearance this week. Um, no, 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 Osha. She wasn't in the last one either, was she? No, she just. I mean, I think it's kind of like Joffrey. Joffrey's not in this episode either, but you know, yeah, the, no. the, you know that they're around. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I do love the shot of Bran in bed where the dream, the Bran's consciousness, kind of gets handed back over to him when Summer. Oh, it's great, isn't walks, it? It's that walks that into his bedroom. He sits like bolt upright, right into the camera, and then yeah, it's really cool. They switch the perspective. Yeah, I love that. Um, but yeah, I think that also, if you really want to read into it, which obviously I will, um, that it feels like the show's kind of grappling with itself a little bit as well. Like I was saying about those characters who are maybe resisting the changes that are going on in the world, and I think it would be easy for maybe the audience to maybe take Mesa Lewin's role a little bit, which is that they are very much used to the first season where it's basically fantasy without fantasy and um, or fantasy without magic. Whereas this season is bringing the magic in and maybe the show is having a little conversation with itself about adjusting to new surroundings because there have been a few, hmm, should we call them teething problems with the storylines involving magic so far this yeah. season and yeah. maybe there are a couple of other slightly meta moments I think later on in the episode uh, not to do with fantasy but just to do with other general plots so I think that maybe you could if you really wanted to read into it I think that Mesa Lewin this week his dialogue kind of takes on the role of maybe the show thinking about adjusting and becoming something else and now it's this whole intellectual property and it's a big HBO series and it's more popular than they expected it to be and are the audience going to adjust to the new age and that sort of thing. I am maybe giving it a little bit too much credit and reading into it a bit too much but hey, it's there. <laughs> no, can... that, that's, that, it does make sense, like the, the present, not the present, the 
the past trying to come to terms with the present and yeah. maybe sort of, as you say, in denial about it a little bit. The wildings serve crueler gods than you or I. Those boys are as offerings. Offerings? He's murdering his own children. He's a monster. Uh, many a time, that monster's been the difference between life and death for our rangers. Your uncle among them. Uh, so Craster brings Jon Snow back to Craster's Keep and orders the rest of the Night's Watch off his land. Jon tries to explain to Lord Commander Mormont why he followed Craster into the woods and discovers that Mormont is already fully aware that Craster has been leaving his sons for the White Walkers. And elsewhere, Sam leaves his mother's little thimble with Gilly um, as something as a deposit, I think, a way of promising to her that he'll come back for her when they've mm. been north, they've seen what they want to see, and they're heading back to Castle Black. So, beyond the wall this week at Crass's Keep, uh, I suppose I'm going to open with a question, which is, did you expect that Mormont kind of already knew? Yeah. I mean, he. I think we we already kind of had this idea that Craster was not, you know, this upstanding citizen that you could put all of your trust in. He was a bit of um, a bit of a seedy character. Mm. But I also I can also see John Moment's point that beyond the wall, there, there there really isn't anybody else that they can actually trust to kind of rely on for any kind of help. Well, I think this show, Game of Thrones, is like brilliant at making people do terrible things or people that you like maybe doing something you don't agree with morally, but then you go, I I can see their point. I am annoyed that I can see their point, but I can see their point all the same. And yeah, I think this is the case with Lord Commander Mormont this week where I think his justification for it is also as well that he can't really comprehend what it means for babies to be given to the White Walkers. He refers to them as like gods and he seems to think that it's like whatever plane the White Walkers are operating on and whatever help Craster is giving them is kind of beyond any control. And so he's in, he's kind of burying his head in the sand a little bit, but also, yeah, like we know that White Walkers pick the babies up, but what happens then? And yeah, it's for all Lord Commander Mormont knows, they could just be like throwing them into the air or, or looking after them or <laughs> any, or eating them or like, yeah. you know, it could, could be anything. Like, you know, so his yeah. thinking of it is just, yep, yeah, just going to ignore that this is happening. I don't care. Like, it, Crast is useful. He's an ally. <laughs> I, mean, that, I mean, that's pretty much it. It's like we know that the sons are being handed over to the White Walkers, but we don't know exactly why. And... That, in a sense, is like, would you really want to risk taking that away from them if you know what they're capable of? Yeah, unless you know what's actually happening once he gives them to the White Walkers, it might not be worth giving up an ally when it could be something quite innocent. Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, but, you know... I mean, I think we know that it's not something innocent. But um, Oh, God, no. No. No way. But from Lord Commander Mormont's perspective, I think that having a valuable place to stay beyond the wall is more important to him and I think that the other thing as well is that there is also this kind of little chasm opening up between the younger generation in the show and the older generation in the show where 
John's clearly thinking about the existential enemy, which is the White Walkers and whatever they've got going on. And he's thinking that he's come... I think John's a little disheartened as well because he's come to the wall to get away from the kind of politics Mm. and squabbling that meant that he was a bastard with nothing to inherit and he was cast aside and now his dad's been killed down in King's Landing and his brother's gone off to war and like he wants to get away from all that but now he's he's kind of like he's jumped out the frying pan and into the fire where there are just there's just as much politics beyond the wall even though it's like a land of wilderness and like barbarians and like scary things that feel quite alien to him there's just as much squabbling and pettiness going yeah. on beyond the wall and i think that low commander mormont's almost ignorance of a potential threat from the white walkers and maybe wanting to believe that they're not quite real i think that it's playing a part whereas john is very much laser focused now on like who cares if we need allies beyond the wall there's a there's a bloody monster killing a, a baby or eating a baby or whatever and that because that's what is in his head he doesn't know what's going on but he thinks the baby must be dead or getting eaten so yeah there's this this generational divide opening up beyond the wall between how john wants to do things and how things have always been done i mean it, it could be in mormon said he might be thinking you know if we if we leave them alone they'll leave us alone mm-hmm but then there is a small matter of um, one of the Night's Watch still being missing. Yes, big member yeah. of the Night's Watch too. Yeah, quite a big one. One wonder, of John's family. has gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Funny that. Just a little thing, a little sort of epilogue to this storyline this week is Sam leaving Gilly with the prized possession of his... Hmm. I mean, I said last week that I think Sam's a really big sweetheart and this week just kind of proves it even further um that it's more of a symbolic gesture than anything concrete but it's just a little thing that gilly can kind of conceal on herself and not be exposed for owning because then if craster finds her with it but obviously like it's something that she can hide and keep for herself and keep precious and it's a promise that it's such an important possession to sam that he won't leave her with it he'll come back for it and he'll come back for her as well yeah. and yeah no i i love that i don't know about you yeah same it's sam sort of being being wiser because i think you know in previous episodes he's wanted to just be you know the white knight that rescues her and promises her everything and that, oh he'll he'll be the savior when he can't really do that you're not in a position to to be that to be that person no but yeah so this is a cleverer way of going about it yeah it's also, I noted that it's only like the second time that we've had sort of any indication of the concept of love existing in this universe. The first being Tyrion and Shay. Hmm. Yeah, but something yeah, beyond raw animal urges. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and you know, endless politics and bickering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's sweet and innocent in a way that the rest of the show isn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. And even then, it's slightly affected by the darkness that Gilly has to live with and the darkness that Sam may well be heading into further beyond the wall. Absolutely. Our words. We do not sow. We do not sow. We are ironborn. 
We're not subjects. We're not slaves. We do not plow the fields or toil in the mine. We take what is ours. Um, so yeah, Iron Islands, off the west coast of Westeros. Um, Theon, and this is the other meta moment, by the way, Theon and Yara are arguing about why Yara didn't reveal who she was when Theon didn't recognise her and was mm. groping her while they were on the horse. Um, but then Balon Greyjoy storms in and he announces that the plan to take the north has been organised. Um, Theon pleads with his father to maybe take a different path and to maybe ally with Rob and then they'll get given Cassidy Rock. But his suggestion is dismissed leaving him to choose between the Starks and his own blood, the Greyjoys. He goes to warn Rob with a letter that the North is going to be attacked, but he burns the letter and is baptised into the Ironborn once again. So Theon had a bad day last week. Yeah. Not had, had a... the best day today. I mean, it's it's somewhat better. He's somewhat kind of has control over his own decisions in this one. Well, I suppose he did last week, but he's he's a bit he's a bit stupid like that, in, in which you know he'll just show up and grow up his own sister because he doesn't know any better, <laughs> like um, you do. Yeah. So what what did you make of the Iron Island stuff this week? Anything you picked out? I mean, it's the first time I've actually felt bad for Theon. It's the scene where he's <laughs> sort of shouting at Baylor and saying, you know, you, you. It's true. He did abandon him. It just. His only son and just kind of what gave him away to the Starks. Yeah, so many people with daddy issues in this show. He would want to prove himself to his dad rather than just say, no, I'm going back with the Starks. It makes sense that he would want to prove him wrong for what he did and make him repent, not repent, you know, um, regret what he did. Yeah, it's a very effective couple of scenes, this, because we've only really had two scenes with Theon and Balon together. But they've been quite economical in the sense that they've had two scenes together and Theon already feels like he's being squeezed into a position where he has to prove himself to his father. Yeah. He's not really got anything to prove to Rob, I don't think. Rob doesn't no, really think that really. Theon has to anything to prove. So, I mean, he has now betrayed Rob. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, it's. It, I mean, this isn't like... I don't know. It's just... It's difficult, really, to watch this Theon scene and just sort of not sit there going, Theon, you idiot. Do you not realise what show you're in? People who make these kinds of decisions, <laughs> they don't always end up happy. What are you doing? And It's true. It's true. But also, if you want to take the North, it's probably the best opportunity you're ever going to get. <laughs> Yeah, while everyone you know? in the north is uh, further south, apart from all the minor houses and all those yeah, um, yeah. loquacious farmers with their petty complaints. And oh, rats. they'll talk your ears off. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> if they come in, the trick is to tell them stories that don't go anywhere. So just great. <laughs> yeah, just bore them to death. In. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, get these farmers uh, tying onions <laughs> to their belts, um, <laughs> which was the style at the time. <laughs> Um, I think there's a great line in um, this bit of the episode, which is just, um, we do not sow, which is the actual house words of the Greyjoys. So mm. how you have the Starks have winter is coming and the Lannisters have hear me roar uh, and all the, all these other house words and things that they say. We do not sow gets right to the heart of the episode, really, which is that the attitudes that people take to alliances 
and joining their forces and trying to do better and trying to be more cooperative, whereas the Greyjoys are just like, nope, <laughs> we're on our own, we're in the sea, we're ironborn, we take, we pay yep. the iron price and everything we have has been taken off someone else and... And again, this is what drives them to take the North, really, like, you know, or, you know, attempt to take the North, which is that, like, they don't want to be given things like Casterly no. Rock. They want to take no. things like Casterly Rock. <laughs> exactly. It's it's kind of foolish of Rob to think that he would just accept it. If you know that about the family, then surely they're not just going to accept it as a given. It, yeah. Yeah, he tries. He tries. He does and... try as our Theon. Um, as a you know super super nerd for the show like I am, by the way, there mm. is a wonderful moment with the music um, composed by Ramin Javadi, Javadi, where Theon is writing that letter to Rob, and he's reading it back, and a Stark theme plays in a slightly different key to its normal. Ah. presentation and then when he okay. burns the letter it transitions to the Greyjoy Theon Greyjoy theme which is the dun 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 and yeah it's just great storytelling with music Ramin Javadi is wonderful with that you'll get to pick up on all the motifs across the show that get louder and louder as um and change form there's a real change around, for me, There's, a, I mean, Ramin Javadi composes the music throughout the show, um, mm. and he also does the music for Westworld and things like that. He's a really good composer, but um, the music gets way more prominent from, like, season six onwards, when you've got all the themes embedded in your skull after seasons six and seven and eight, going back and watching one, two, three, four, and five, where the music is there, but maybe not as prominent, it's mm. really good to pick up on little wrinkles of uh, musical storytelling in crucial moments when you're familiar with the themes, you know to look out for them. Um, there are some really excellent themes in the show, and I think the season two theme around Pike and, and the Iron Islands, the da, 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 is one of my uh, it's one of my favourites. Yeah, it's um, really clever. I, I mean, I. I know I probably wouldn't have noticed that anyway, but it does make me want oh, to yeah. go back and um, I needed and to watch, watch this it. four or five times over to pick this up, so... Yeah, wow. Good spot. Brienne of Tarth, you may ask anything of me you desire. It is within my power. It is yours. Your Grace, I ask the honour of a place in your Kingsguard. I will be one of your seven... Pledge my life to yours and keep you safe from all harm. Moving a little bit further south in the Reach. Now, the Reach is sort of to the west of King's Landing, towards like the bottom left of Westeros. Okay. Um, so, yeah, in the Reach, uh, Catelyn arrives at Renly Baratheon's camp to find Brienne of Tarth comfortably mm. beating Loras Tyrell in a sparring match. Brienne is then welcomed into Renly's Kingsguard, much to Loris's displeasure and a little bit of jealousy. Later, we are properly <clears throat> introduced to Marjorie Tyrell, who is aware of Renly's relationship with her brother, Loris, but insists that if Renly is able to just get her pregnant, it will secure the alliance of their two houses, potentially win the war for them, and then no harm done, and we can just go on pretending that we're happily married. 
Um, so, what, like, two new characters turning up this week in The Reach. There is Lady Marjorie, who is married to King Renly Baratheon, or as he's calling himself, King Renly Baratheon, and uh, Brienne, or is sometimes called uh, Lady Brienne, or Brienne of Tarth, but Brienne is, you know, most kind of common greeting for them. So, I want to know first what you make of Brienne. Really fucking cool. Yeah. Oh, cool. Right, okay, Just yeah, go on. Such, like, an, you know that kind of immediately striking look? She look, she doesn't look like anybody else in the show, really. No. So, um, yeah. Not at all. Yeah, no. very, very striking. She's got such a, such a unique and, like, such a, such an amazing physique, really. Yeah, she's um, like an imposing figure. But yeah, Lady Brienne's awesome. She beats Loris into the dirt. Yeah, joins King Renly's uh, King's Guard um, and is awesome. And then she has a scene with Catelyn where she says, "I'm not really a lady. Maybe, maybe don't call me that. But hey, you know, I'm generally cool." Um, someone that we see a lot more of in this episode for the first time is Marjorie Tyrell. So she's yep. Loris's sister. Uh, so yeah, what do you make of Marjorie this week? And also just the scenes that she's in, like her awareness of Renly's sexuality and the fact that he's in a relationship with her brother and she doesn't really mind so long as she gets to be queen, as it were, when Renly inevitably, you know, in her eyes, wins the war or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think putting aside the stuff with Loris, it kind of... I don't know how you feel about me saying that it sort of echoes what's going on, you know, on the other side of the Baratheons with Stannis and... Um... Okay. Oh, sorry, what's her name? Uh, Melisandre. Melisandre, thank yeah. you. Yeah, so it, it, there's a little bit of that where it seems like, as you know, um, the, the male is a bit more uncertain about going into this um, this quest than, you know, the woman is. Yeah. Um, as for the... Um, I mean, I don't really have much notes about stuff with Loris, but it's it's quite an interesting dynamic that you'd, you would just think the expectation would be they'd kind of hold off this information for all the season and then it would suddenly be revealed and it would all fall apart. I know what so you mean, to, yeah. Yeah, to have that shattered just straight away, it's like, I, I know about this and, you know, it's not ideal, but we can still make something of this alliance. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think Marjorie um, is great. Marjorie is a lot of people's um, favourite, really. Yeah. Um, for to be honest, I think she's got a similar mindset to a couple of characters in the show. I think quite a lot of people's favourite characters in the show tend to have quite... I think I've talked about this before with Tyrion. They have quite modern mindsets mm. where they're generally blasé about all the stuff that the rest of the country in Westeros just kind of gets all ick about. Like, she's even open to this idea of Loras coming in getting Renly started and then having this kind of threesome and stuff. And she's like, you know, there's just, you know, no, no problem for Marjorie. Like, Marjorie will do anything. She's yeah, no, she's no. she's fine with it. Like, um, so she's, yeah, she's kind of relaxed about the whole thing. And But she is aware that if they don't produce an heir, then it, it becomes a problem for them both. So it yeah. is much about, yeah. it is as much about her as it is about um, 
Renly, there's just a little, by the way, there's just a little continuity error in this scene. I don't know if you picked up on it based on what I've been saying. But the correct way to pronounce their surname is Tyrell. Okay. Not the crisps, like Tyrells. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sorry for Americans. Potato chips, like Tyrells. Um, But it happened in the first episode, and it happened... In this episode, where in the first episode, Stannis referred to um, Renly's, like, alliance with the Tyrrells. And now Loras has referred to a Tyrrell. And it's like, it's a Tyrell. And apparently, and they do, again, they settle on this pronunciation. It's like, for the whole first season, it was Meister, 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 Meister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's Meister, 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 Meister. And now for the whole second season, it's like Tyrrell, 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 Tyrrell. And then from onwards, it's Tyrell, 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 Tyrell. So, yeah, it's <laughs> it's just funny listening to this scene. And it's like, they were clearly, they'd never heard these words said aloud before. <laughs> no, no. And they maybe got a little little note from George I. Martin just going, actually, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does make me laugh watching that scene back. Um, there's, um, and God, well, there's the way... Enough- Sorry, go on. I was going to say, there's another one kind of like this later. It's not not really a continuity error, but um, I noticed something about Baelish in this episode. In yeah. that, have you noticed his voice is very different in this one? Oh, we are going to go on a journey with his voice, man. Yeah. They are. But, I mean, yeah. we'll get to that when we get to King's Landing, but just thought that was um, an interesting little yeah. coincidence. There, there, are, there were actually comments made about... Um, Peter Baelish's voice and mm. the way that it progresses across his uh, time on the show. I can trust you, Pycelle, can I not? Why, yes, of course, my lord. These are perilous times. And the Crown must forge new alliances. And these alliances must often be sealed in matrimony. Matrimony? Uh, yes. So, Shay initially loved being in the city, but being cooped up in the Tower of the Hand has left her a bit bored and restless. I think we all know how that feels uh, after the last 12 months. Oh, uh, God, yeah. Tyrion, Tyrion finds her a job, though, as Sansa's handmaiden. Sansa also has dinner with Cersei. Tyrion then sets about working out who he can trust, and so he tells different plans to Varys, Littlefinger, and Maester Pycelle in order to root out who will feed information to Cersei. Pycelle is revealed to be the mole, and Tyrion puts him in a cell for the time being. Tyrion then sends Littlefinger to meet with Catelyn at Renly's camp to see if he can, you know, work out some kind of deal, broker some kind of alliance, that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff in King's Landing this week. What do you make of it? Yeah, this is another one of those things that only UK listeners will be able to understand, and even then it's quite niche, but... With the um, the Tyrion stuff, um, like telling them all different different plans to sort of throw them off to scent a little bit. All I could think of was, um, did you see the Colleen Rooley Rebecca Vardy kind of what was it? Um, <laughs> yeah, Wagatha Christie. <laughs> that is it was great. Rebecca Vardy's account. <laughs> it's, it's all the it's the Pytel's account. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Oh, God. Oh, man. Way <laughs> to just enhance one of my favourite scenes in the whole show. That's like, yeah. No, I, I love this scene. I think it's excellent. I just love the arrangement of it and just 
the way that the information is slowly bled out and then the way that Varys, Littlefinger and then Pycelle are all kind of introduced into each section of the scene and it, the way it blends as one long conversation. Yeah, the scene never really breaks, does it? It's all just one long kind of continuous, not like a continuous shot, but yeah, you never leave that scene. It It's, it's really clever how they do it. Yeah, I think it's because of the way that it's kind of built around Tyrion and then they'll move someone out of the frame and then they'll change the shot slightly and cut away and have somebody mm. place in again. But it's it's very clever from Tyrion. It's the cleverest oh, yeah. movie he's made so far. For sure. Uh, good old acting from uh, Lena Headey there as well, who's uh, Cersei Lannister, where she's oh, yeah. not yeah. happy about Marcella being shipped off to Dawn, potentially. No, not at all. Yeah, dead annoyed. So so annoyed that she chucks stuff off the table. <laughs> and also um, Tyrion's did, just like, sorry. He's, he kind of warns her off a little bit, but mostly he just, you can tell he doesn't really give a toss. <laughs> no. It's like, oh yeah. No, I think he that. sees the alliance as more important. Yes. Um, another thing that gets, um, sort of to pick up on this week is that Sansa and Shay are now going to be spending a lot of time together. Yeah. Sansa kind of reverted a little bit to her season one behaviour in this episode, I think. She's quite mean to Shay for not much reason. Beyond the I fact th- that she's a 13-year-old without a father. but yeah, I see what you mean, but I think it's also... If you can imagine that she's been locked up for all the time and she's had to deal with all of these Lannister stooges and suddenly this, mm. you know, this another person shows up and, he's, and she must be thinking, oh God, another one. And I think it comes from a place of fear more than anything. It's not really arrogance yeah. as such. It's more just um, insecurity and uncertainty that's kind of causing that. And eventually, you know, later in the scene, she maybe softens a little bit not much but she says like okay you can brush my hair but hopefully that relationship sort of softens a bit and because she hasn't she doesn't really have anybody that she can open up to you think with I do think it could be very valuable for them both yeah yeah if they are able to form again form this alliance that this episode likes to this episode really pushes the alliances I think yeah, neither of them are supposed to be there in different ways, if you think about it. Mm. Yeah, they are both aliens to the city, really. Yeah, yeah. Shay's maybe from a little further afield, and she's not been there as long. But no, you are totally, totally right. Um, there are... I mean, there's one very funny line, I think, in this episode in King's Landing, which is the um, cut off his manhood and feed it to the goats... <laughs> and um, you get the, the, the you get the hill tribes back. The hill tribes haven't gone away. They're, they're still yeah. there. That one guy, he's there from the hill tribes. Not wasn't Shaga son of Dolph, but oh, um, he's still got the hill tribe guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think the most famous line that comes from this episode and gets you know quoted quite a lot by fans and gets referenced a lot in trailers and things like that is Varys's power resides where men believe it resides it's a trick a shadow on the wall and one small man can cast a very large shadow see i know it off by heart because it's just it's a really big favorite amongst the fans because it's like the show's philosophy kind of bleeding out through dialogue very slowly and through Mm. these kind of riddly metaphors for things and that's one of them where it's kind of like this unanswerable riddle that has a different answer every time and it's about that power has a different 
power places itself in different places in different rooms depending on the context of who's asking who to do what and yeah so yeah fantastic scene fantastic line um maybe not something that would jump out on a first watch but it's something that when everything's in context um fans always go back to this one it's one of those videos on youtube where like you'll watch clips of game of thrones on youtube and some scenes will have like i don't know 60 70 000 views on youtube or something like that but then some scenes will have like five million and this is the one yeah. with like five million views on youtube because people keep going back to it and they keep referencing it and they keep it's like in got loads of like comments in the stuff about like oh yeah this scene's great and oh yeah it's amazing and you know it's one that often gets quoted on reddit quite a lot and it gets quoted on other websites loads and yeah so that's a, a big favorite of loads of people's and i have to say i am totally with the consensus on this one i love that scene love varis in this episode um, it's great yeah I, I don't know if you really i don't know if it jumped out at you or anything like that as a, a total you know a total newbie to this but did it jump out i mean not the line in particular but i like the sort of chemistry that varis and Tyrion have together they both it's I don't know how to describe it that they both I don't not cynical but they have a kind mm. of weariness of all the you know the the pageantry and the backstabbing and it it kind of they it's like they see themselves as a slightly above it yeah no totally I think that what they have is a relationship that's quite close but also simultaneously at arm's length yeah where yeah. Tyrion trusts Varys, but only as far as he could throw him. Yes, and sure. I think that Varys is aware of this, and so would never maybe, you know, in, in this position, he maybe wouldn't betray Tyrion, but if it came down to Varys or Tyrion, Varys would offer Tyrion up in a second. I think that's the kind of strange relationship they have. It's kind of like Tyrion and Bronn, actually, where you would think that Tyrion and Bronn are quite close but they only are because Tyrion pays Bronn yeah so yeah there's um, weird dynamics to explore um, another weird thing that will get explored as you say is Littlefinger's voice um, yeah so basically over time I won't say how much time because that would indicate how long Littlefinger is or isn't in the show for or how often he appears but hmm. Aidan Gillen was asked about why his voice changed from season one to the rest of the time that he's on the show. And again, I should indicate that the rest of the show could mean till the end of season two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight. Um, But he did say that he did it on purpose. He said that as he grew into the character, he realized that he was wanting to make him more mysterious and so he made his voice a bit more whispery and kind of raspy mm, it doesn't sound and mysterious you'll notice... no it's something that I think he's working through at the moment mm, um, but guess. it is something that people notice and he was asked about it in an interview and he did say that it was a purposeful inf- a change of inflection if you will what yeah. was it that you noticed about his voice? Well, it didn't sound mysterious. It sounded more kind of cartoonish. He sounded like he was in the League of Gentlemen or something. <laughs> I think it's it's more mysterious that he's this kind of completely normal-sounding guy who sort of lures you into a false sense of security, like with Ned. And then... Okay. Know, 
within a, you know within a the blink of an eye he can stab you in the back it's but, but yeah this it seems a little bit mm, ott maybe and maybe he figures it out but yeah it didn't didn't yeah, sound good hammy. here L- a little bit hammy i've seen some pretty things too but not nearly so many how do you sleep when you when you have those things in your head? You didn't see that. I made damn sure. I close my eyes and I see them up there. Finishing off this week in the Riverlands, mm-hmm. I uh, can't sleep, so she sat up at night with Yorin, who tells her about Willem. The boy who killed Yorin's brother and kept Yorin awake at night, dreaming of revenge. And then Yorin tells Aya that he eventually killed Willem and then took the black immediately afterwards. Uh, but just then, a team of Lannister soldiers and city watchmen come back to claim Gendry again, but this time they've got one of the king's chief guards people called Sir Amory Lorch. They and a guy called Polliver as well, who's the bald guy who's like the assistant to Armory Lorch. Uh, they come to claim Gendry again, but they steal Needle, Arya's sword, and a fight ensues during which Yorin is sadly killed. Arya then tricks the men, though, into believing that they've already killed Gendry when actually they've killed Lommy Greenhands. Mm. And as you sent to me, in the aftermath of watching the episode, what did you what did you send to me, Lizzie? Well, um, I sent you not Lommy. <laughs> oh no, not, not Lommy, not Lommy. <laughs> I have some awful news about Lommy. Um, yeah, for people who don't watch The Simpsons, it's the not Lenny thing. You can Google yeah. not Lenny, uh, but not Lommy. Um, yeah. I think the Riverland stuff is great this week, and you sounded like you wanted to talk about it, so have the floor. Sure. I mean, I also messaged you last week as well, because we recorded the episode, and I mentioned that Arya's relationship with Gendry kind of echoed a little bit of, I think it was Sam and John at the wall, but then I forgot the really obvious one. Yeah, that's right. Is that it echoes the relationship between Arya and John. You know, John is a bastard, so Mm -hmm. is Gendry. He kind of looks out for her like an older brother. It, it's, I kind of had to sort of smack my head and think, of course, of course, that's what the um, the connection is there. Um, and then I guess this week we're going back to the whole male role model and Aria thing where it seems like every time she finds one, they're taken away from her, whether it be... You know, Ned, it could be Syria Pharrell, it's, you know, John's been sent off to the wall. Um, and then also, I think maybe the sort of, because you, you just mentioned it then that Yoren tells the story of Willem, and there's that kind of connection. It's like Willem killing, was it Yoren's brother? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you, you think of that like um, with Arya and. Oh, who was the who was the boy killed in episode two? Micah. Micah, that's it. It's like that. She has this. She knows in her head that you know Joffrey's name will ring around until she can get justice for what happened to 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 Micah and and everything that's happened there and everything that's still ongoing with her sister Sansa. 
And then we know what happens to Yorin, but yeah, it's it's happened again. Well, this is very much one for maybe answering questions at a later date because this episode is the beginning of something that's one of the most famous aspects of the show. Mm. Um, like an ongoing theme of the show, an ongoing motif of the show. Um, and we will mention it. It doesn't It doesn't take long to come up, but um, this starts something in Aya. And mm. I'll leave it at that. Okay. For now, it will be questions answered at a later date, but it does awaken something in Arya that becomes a very consistent theme of her character and of the show as a whole. And it's one of those. It's it, it's it's like uh, it's it's one of the show's own memes, really. Um, mm. If you want to use it in those terms, um, I absolutely adore that scene with Yoren and Arya having the conversation about Willem because not only, yeah. I mean, I forget the name of the uh, the actor who who plays uh, Yoren, but the way that he delivers that story and the way that he talks about the way that revenge eats away at him and mm. the only way that he manages to get over his revenge is to just kill and it doesn't really make him any happier and it's not healthy no, and yeah. he's imparting this kind of unhealthy wisdom and the way I mean Maisie Williams is like just stunning in these like early exchanges because she's like what 11 12 maybe at this yeah. stage yeah might be as old as 13 or 14 by now but her the way that her face changes across the course of the scene mm. where she starts to get a little smile on her face as if it's like she's found a way out of feeling the way that she feels because she's saying like I can't sleep how do you sleep when all you can think about is death and all you can think about is the people that you've lost and you're just so consumed by grief like how do you get over this how do you get out of this and then her mentor just sort of says well I got out of it by killing the guy who made me feel that way and you can just see a little smile forming across Maisie Williams face and Ah, man, it's, yeah, it's excellent. I love that little touch. And then, just when you think, oh, great, Aya's got another mentor to replace Sirio and Ned, who were both tragically, and Micah, who were all tragically taken away from her. Yeah. Another one gets taken away from her, and it's like, this is now Micah, Sirio, Ned, and now Yorin. (laughs) Well, when does this list end? Yeah, they have that kind of really serene, well, not serene, but that... It's quite a sweet scene. As much as what they're discussing is very brutal and, and awful, they they do find that kinship in one another. But then, obviously, you, you hear really the horn do, yeah. sound, and then straight away, Yorin is like, "Right, get up, get up! They're gonna there's <laughs> men outside who will who will kill you. It's kill or be killed, basically." I did have a question for you on this actually, because throughout the episode okay. and in this scene. There's a mention of a place called is it Harrenhal? Harrenhal, yes. Yeah. Have we seen that before? No. Um we one way or another, we will get mm-hmm. there. Either through Littlefinger's storyline or through Aya's storyline, but we will get there. Basically, it will I think it gets explained, but just in case it doesn't, Harrenhal used to be like 
the biggest castle in Westeros. Like it was huge. It was it was massive. Mm. Anyone who owned it, it's right on the edge of a big lake. So it's the only castle in Westeros aside from King's Landing that's got like um, a big water, um, a big water surrounding, like a big moat essentially. Um, mm. that I can think of. Like, there's River Run, which has got a river running under it, but, like, you know, it's one that's, like, surrounded by water. It's very difficult to attack, which is why it was such a big stronghold. But then, uh, you know, 300 years ago, when the Targaryens came over with the dragons, it, what what good's a moat against the dragon? And basically, um, it was destroyed by dragon fire. And so the basic structure of the castle is there, but it's a ruin. Mm. So it's just kind of been turned into a prison now, over right, the years, yeah. it's not really a yeah. castle anymore. It's just somewhere to hold people uh, while they await the, a judgment or what they're supposed to do with people. But like, the stone melted and the castle was destroyed. It's just like a big ruin. Uh, but that's Harrenhal. It's still valuable because it's a prison and it's in a good location. It's right on the edge of a lake called the God's Eye. Um, mm. But yeah, that's that's the story with Harrenhal and you we will see it we will get there um okay. it's just about whether Littlefinger gets there first or whether Arya gets there first interesting okay um right do you have anything more to say about the Riverlands this week well we've not mentioned launch like is it launch 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 oh I, I'm, I'm, I'm launch yes so he kills um he kills Lommy in quite disgusting fashion um, oh, that's Polyver. That's Polyver who kills Lommy. The bald guy is Polyver. The Am- Amory Lorch is the guy on horseback who kills Yorin, who shoves the sword down his I back. I see, I see. So yeah. Polyver is the guy who's nicked Needle and stabs Lommy through the throat. Okay. And it's actually good that you've brought that up because I find it difficult to breathe when that happens. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, gnarly. Mm. Gnarly. <laughs> I mean, this show is gnarly at the best of times, but that was especially gnarly. Like, the just the difficult visual of watching a thin needle go through somebody's neck and then the blood... Uh, no, can't do it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's horrid. Poor Lummy as well. We really barely knew that guy. Like, he had an argument about whether a knight had armour on and whether he'd seen a battle... And mm. then he was foolish enough to pick up the helmet that was Gendry's identifier. Yeah, I've I've felt awful for Lommy and also Hop High. I just thought I've never really you you never really root for those kids before because you felt like they were just sort of well bullies in a sense. But I think we discussed mm. last week in that they're clearly just kids who have been in a, a shit situation and are now in a shit situation where they're well they're basically being hunted and if they survive that they're being handed over to the Night's Watch where they will have to toil for all eternity so yeah I hope that relationship between you know Arya and Gendry and the rest of the um, the rest of those in the Riverlands the travelling kind of, band as it were yeah yeah I'm, I'm curious to see how that either improves or dissolves after this okay yeah i think we'll um we'll leave it at that and i will mm. ask you for your loser this week who's your loser my loser of the week as much as we only see him in one scene it's polyver okay yep i had yep. a feeling mm. yeah i had a feeling 
Yeah, I think we know why. Stabs a kid through the throat because he can't it's, be asked carrying him. It's such a cowardly murder, isn't it? Like, it, yeah. And your winner? Winner of the week is Yoren. I'm really sad that we're not going to see him again. Yeah. Aww. He was a good egg. Aww. He was. He, he was He was a good egg, I thought. For, for people in this show, yeah, we first met him quite early on. Um, mm. We met him at Castle Black. He shared some time with Tyrion. He stopped Arya from seeing Ned get beheaded. He took Arya yeah. as far north as he could get her. And he saved a life. Dead. Yeah. yeah. He also has another great episode, uh, another great line in this episode, which is, um, I've always hated crossbows. Take too long to load. Oh, and, it's magnificent. Uh, he manages yeah. to swipe that guy across the face. But yeah. yeah. Swipe no more. And he's just going to, I don't know, presumably like rot away now. So that's fun. Mm. Um so next week we've got season two episode four which is garden of bones and yeah so until then thanks very much for tuning in i think so yeah the music playing us out is um alfie by lily allen uh not as much of a theon centric episode maybe as last week but hey you know we brought it up so we'll play it mm-hmm. um so yeah thanks very much we'll see you again next time you